if you're visiting, um, if you're someone of no faith or lots of faith, strong faith, weak faith, once had a faith um, or, or, or other faith, um, we're just great that you're with us and hopefully you'll experience a welcome uh, amongst us um, as well. And the question I've been given today um, might be considered a, a kind of controversial question. How can Christians insist they are right? Um, and it's a question that I was asked by my dad. Um, I just finished, um, I, I, just qual- I just actually graduated with a PhD and was setting off on a, a line of science. Um, and I decided in my life that I was gonna do something a little bit different and start to get involved in a church. And he asked me that question. He said, how can you know that you're right? And he was, he was quite, um, quite vocal about the question. It was a big question, and you can understand in the context he was looking at is what is this kid of mine doing um, pursuing a completely different line of life uh, with this? And it is a big, big question. So surely, you know, many people would say that it is arrogant to say that your religion is right um, and therefore that you have some superior knowledge over everyone else, that you can convert someone to what you believe and that you're right and effectively everybody else is wrong. It sounds so arrogant. And when it comes to religion, surely all the religions are, are equally good, you know, or equally bad, if that's your view of religion, but at least they are equally valid for their followers um, and meeting the needs that they find uh, within it. And surely all that matters is that people believe in God, are sincere about it, and are, are, are nice to people, are kind to people, um, and are good to, to other people, and loving in it. Surely that is all that it is about. And therefore to insist that our faith has a better grasp of truth than someone else's viewpoint seems to be intolerant in our world. And uh, the fact is that we live in a world that increasingly looks at religion and sees the problem of religion. We see, we see wars around the world, uh, we see the challenges of it, and therefore, there are a lot of leaders around the world that are trying to do a number of things. And we've seen it through the years, we see it today uh, in different parts of the world. Um, there's a call to outlaw religion, there's a call to condemn it, uh, and there's a call to privatize it in many ways. And, uh, and we see these uh, around us. You don't have, have to look very far, we can look to Northern Ireland and say, look at the problems that religions and Christianity even seem to cause uh, in there. Uh, why should we do that? And we look at the religious factions uh, around our world and think, is that, I'm not sure that is detrimental to our world. But uh, first of all, to outlaw, in the 20th century, when you actually look at the last century, the people or the, uh, across society or in our world that most tried to outlaw Christianity actually ended up being the most intolerant and violent people across the century. Whenever they tried to thinking religion causes intolerance and violence, actually they became those very uh, uh, kind of things that became them themselves within it. Um, and even with the vitality of the Christian faith, as we've just looked at this series on dangerous faith, as the communists tried to push out Christianity and they pushed the missionaries out from China, then the, the faith went into the homes, it went into the people of China, and actually what came out of it, even though they tried to stamp it out, it became one of the most vibrant underground churches uh, that the world has seen and the, and the revival of Christianity there. So it doesn't work. By, by outlawing it. The second approach is to condemn it, or at least to kind of re-educate people about it, to, to change their argument uh, about it, to find ways to socially discourage um, religion and faith on any claim that they have the truth or try and convert someone 
to that. Um, you know, can't we find ways to urge all the citizens of our world, whatever their religious beliefs, to simply admit that every religion or every faith is just one of many valid paths to God and ways to live? Now, it's fine for you, but it doesn't need to be for everyone. But unlike the first approach, that approach is having quite a big impact on our world. We might see it in our schools, we might see it in our universities, we might see it around in lots of different places. But ultimately, it's argued it won't succeed because the arguments it is based on are actually flawed arguments. Um, so for example, you know, all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. We'll come to that. Okay, each religion sees part of spiritual truth, but no one can see the whole. We'll come to that one. It's arrogant to insist your religion is right and convert others to it. And uh, although these sound plausible, okay, they are flawed arguments, as we'll unpack. And then the third aspect is to privatize it, to radically privatize it and say, your faith is great where you are in your home, but please don't bring it into work. Please don't bring it into the public space. But as anybody who knows a Christian or is a Christian knows, that there's such core beliefs that we have that how you can't live that out um, on your vision for life, on your values for life, it is impossible to not bring it into the public sphere because of the nature of how much it shapes uh, people's lives. And so that sets a context of why this is so controversial in our world. In fact, for many people, they see it as a threat to world peace. It's that, it's that big uh, for people. And so where do Christians get their notion from? And uh, hence uh, why we've read this morning from the New Testament and also from the words of Jesus as well as the apostles' teaching um, as well. So let's look at the, at the radical Christian viewpoint, the radical teachings of Jesus uh, on, uh, on our faith, on other religions, um, and, uh, and how also we respond to all of that. Because Jesus himself said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, that is a radical statement in our world. He claims to be the way to God, and he claims to be the only way to God. And when Peter and John heal the, 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 the crippled man outside the temple in Acts chapter 4, this large crowd gathers. And Peter proclaims there that this Jesus is the author of life. That's a big statement. The author of life itself. Um, he goes on and he says he's now been crucified. He's now been resurrected and glorified. And so they're arrested. They're put on trial and they're asked, by what power have you just done what you've done? And their reply is, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that this is the name that has that authority that can even heal people. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God's Spirit, okay, inspired by God's Spirit, replies with this and goes on and says in Acts 4 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, is very clear that Jesus is the only name by which people can be saved. And his answer is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. So Paul, for example, in Timothy, he writes to Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews comes back with the rhetorical question, saying, how shall we escape? 
if we ignore such a great salvation. There is no other way. And so the claims of Jesus and the New Testament is that he is the only way to God. That's, that's what we read. That's what we, we come before. And that's what we have to do. So what makes Jesus so unique? Why can he claim to be so unique? Well, on what basis does he make this claim? Well, firstly, on his qualification. So Peter proclaims Jesus here as the holy and righteous one. The holy and righteous one. Okay? He's talking of God himself. He is the author of life, verse 15. He is the one the prophets foretold. This, this coming Messiah, this coming Christ, the one who would rescue the world that was foretold for generations, this is him, the Christ. And he's the one that the early church worshipped as God. And that makes Jesus entirely different to all the other leaders of the great religions. There is no one in Islam, for example, who would dream of giving Muhammad divine honor. Okay? He would be the first to reject that idea um, because it is blasphemy that a, a person could be God. And that is the view of the world. That is what blasphemy is. It's not even clear when we could look at Buddhism that whether Buddha even believed there was a God. Certainly in early Buddha, Buddhism, they have no God. Um, but it is for that that Jesus is stoned. Why are we stoning you? We're stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. John chapter 10 and verse 33. And when uh, after the crucifixion, um, Thomas comes and Thomas won't believe if Jesus is raised from dead till he puts his, his hands in his wounds. And uh, eventually he appears to Thomas, Jesus, um, and, and he says to, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Okay, he calls him my God. And he doesn't say, that's a bit over the top, Thomas. He says, why are you so slow to believe? Okay, it is a radical claim that he makes. And clearly, religions don't all teach the same thing about God. Okay, religions clearly don't have the same idea of God. There can be many gods, there can be one God. His nature can be very different. And they're very different on who they teach Jesus is. And Christianity is unique. And Jesus claims to be God and therefore is uniquely qualified. And he demonstrates that authority even in his name being used in what it achieves in, in other things. Not only is he unique in who he is, he's unique in his achievements. As Peter puts it, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Okay, every person on this planet needs a savior. Okay, a savior. Why? Because we've all sinned. Because we've all fallen short. Actually, we've all fallen short of our own standards in life, if we're honest. How much more have we fallen short of God's standards in life? Okay, we've all got it wrong. And uh, sin results in a separation from God. We, we, can't, we find ourselves distant from him um, and uh, away from him because of the nature of sin in people's lives. And none of the other great religions even claims to have a savior. Okay? Buddha was a teacher, very clearly. He was not a savior. Muhammad is regarded as a prophet, not as a savior. In fact, in, in Islam, um, sinners face judgment without forgiveness. No, there's a hope that maybe your good might outweigh your bad, but there's nothing that deals with the bad. There's no way of getting rid of the stain of sin upon our lives. There is no salvation. There's no removal of the sin. 
And yet in contrast, Jesus is the one who brings salvation through his death on the cross. He saves us from our guilt. He cancels the debt of sin. He rescues us from the addictive power that sin has upon our lives. And he saves us from the judgment that actually each one of us deserves uh, before a holy God. He is unique in what he accomplished when he died on the cross. And thirdly, he's unique in his resurrection. Peter described him here as, as Harry read, the one whom God raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead. Just, just ponder that for a minute. He's raised from the dead. Acts chapter four and verse 10. The resurrection is a unique event in human history. It is not repeated anywhere else. He goes through death and comes out the other side and is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Because it's because of that that we know he truly has power over death itself and over sin. Because he's alive, we can actually know him. We can come into a relationship with him. You cannot know Buddha. You can know about him. You cannot know Muhammad. Okay? But you can know Jesus. You can know God. You can come into a relationship with him. So Jesus is unique because of, uh, he is God become a man. He is uniquely a savior in this world. The only one who's dealt with sin and he's uniquely raised from the dead. And because of all of that, he's the only way to God. But that doesn't fit with most people's thinking in the world. It challenges world's thinking today, just like it challenges the world of Jesus' day, which is actually why he ended up um, the way he did. And so the world will try to outlaw it if it can, but it doesn't work. It will try and condemn it and educate people out of it if they can, but actually the arguments are flawed and they will try and restrict it to just the private. Keep it in there. Keep it in the home. Okay, please don't bring it out into our world. But if you don't believe it, if you don't believe in the Christian faith, then Perhaps that's quite understandable. You can see where people are coming from. You know, we look at Paul uh, as he was in, the, in, in, in Acts 7 and Acts chapter 8. And he was zealously against these people that called them Christians. He just, he wanted to stamp it out because he saw what it might do um, until he himself encounters Jesus um, and, uh, and turns uh, himself. But we can understand where that comes from. It's worth saying that the Christian faith is not just a blind faith. Um, You know, there is strong evidence, as we look at for the New Testament. There's strong evidence for the resurrection. And, you know, we can look at that another time. Or you can come and ask me, I can point you in the right direction uh, to look at some of the evidence for that. But in the New Testament, we do have a claim of ultimate truth. And um, Jesus says it, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. But are there parts of truth elsewhere? What, what do we do with other religions, um, other philosophies? You know, what about some of the good things that we see in the other religions? We see incredible hospitality sometimes. We see uh, tremendous devotion and commitment and dedication. Many of it challenges us and challenges our own lifestyle, uh, perhaps. But actually, we would expect to find some sort of truth um, in other parts of life and even in, perhaps in other religions. Um, Because we know through general revelation that God has created a world that reflects his image in some way. He's revealed himself in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And the pinnacle of of, of creation is is human life. 
Um, and uh, there may be many who are unsure in our world. There may be many who are agnostic. But it's interesting that, you know, it's over 95% of people on the planet believe there's a God of some sort. Okay? There's only about 5% that are atheists. You know, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the one that so that they are without excuse. And as we look at our world, and even as we look at, you know, some of the, the religions around us, there will be things that are good that we see uh, within each one of them. Secondly, we're made in the image of God. Every single human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, we, we have huge respect uh, one for another. And as part of that, we're made with a conscience. We all have a sense of right and wrong, whether we're of faith or whether we're of no faith. You know, we have this ability, it's not perfect, but we have this ability to see um, and make sense of some of the, the rights and wrongs of our world. In fact, um, uh, Paul writes about the Gentiles and he says that uh, they do by nature the things required by the law. There's something built in uh, into our conscience, if you like. Um, you know, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have do unto yourself, um, appears from Confucius onwards, okay? It's right across many of the religions. And actually, if you don't have enough to be religious to think that's a good idea. A lot of people will see that because there's something built into uh, the human uh, sense of, of right and wrong um, and what is, what is just and unjust. And also, there's a hunger in the heart of everyone for God. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has set eternity in the human heart, that we're made with a longing for God. We're all looking for something in life. We all realize that materialism doesn't really satisfy, that there's something more to life. And, uh, and so we have this inbuilt sense of looking for something that is actually a God-shaped gap. It's not a religion-shaped gap, but it is a God-shaped gap. And so people look in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of things to try and find uh, who this God might be. And so we will see good things in, in everything in our world around us. You know, we'll see some bad things as well. We may be challenged by people's commitment and their devotion um, and their dedication. But it also explains why for many people who come to a Christian faith from another religious faith, that actually sometimes there's a sense of continuity in their lives. Uh, Leslie Newbegin put it like this. He was a, a bishop in South India for about 40 years. And he says there's an element of continuity which is confirmed in the experience of many who have become converts to Christianity from other religions. Even though their conversion involves a radical discontinuity in the fact that you know, their life has been radically changed, yet there is often the strong conviction afterwards that it was the living and true God who was dealing with them in the days of their pre-Christian wrestlings. And it may be through a dream that someone has and they start to look at who is this, who is this Jesus or who is, you know, what is this? Or there's a dissatisfaction within it. Or we may even think at one end of the spectrum, you know, a, a Jewish person who becomes a Christian doesn't decide, do I want to be Jewish or Christian? They can still be Jewish. They are Jewish. In fact, they become fully Jewish. J Jesus was Jewish. Okay? But what they do is they understand the truth of the fulfillment of all the promises of old in their Christian faith. In fact, they don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves Messianic Jews because they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Now that's one end of the spectrum, but there's all sorts of places where people have encountered the real and true and living God um, and then come out of their kind of one way of thinking to understand the reality and the truth of God. And as somebody, I think, helpfully said once, if you meet someone at the back of a cave with a candle, okay, don't blow their candle out. Okay? But, let, but lead them carefully to the mouth of the cave where the true light is rather than just blow their candle out straight away. Because they've got a little bit of light and you need to start where they're at and help people uh, move forward. However, it is illogical to conclude that all religions are equally true. They cannot be. There are religions in this world that say there is no God. Okay? They don't even believe in a God at all. They just have a set of rules to live by. That cannot be equally true as a religion that says there is a God. A religion that says there's lots of gods and a religion that says there's one God cannot be equally true. Okay? They just they does not make any logical sense at all. And so we will expect to find error in other religions as well um, because we are fallen human beings. None of us can find God by ourselves, which is why God has come himself to show us what he is like. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus who, as he claimed, is the truth. Okay? And it's only in Jesus do we find infallible truth. It doesn't mean that Christians are not infallible. Christians are fallible. Okay? Our understanding of truth is not infallible. But God's revelation in Jesus Christ is infallible. And that's our standard that we always look at. That's what we hold up. And then we, we, we see truth and we see error alongside uh, all of that. You know, there may be very many, there may be dark aspects to other religions. There may be a dark side to the way that some people use Christianity, okay? But there is no dark side to God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And so there's an old argument that goes, um, and you may have come across it, so that's my candle. The old argument goes of the elephant and the, the blind men. Um, you may have come across it. And there's several blind men walking along and they meet an elephant that allows them to touch him. And so the first comes along and he, he comes to the trunk, all right? And he thinks, oh, this animal's like a snake. It's long and thin, right? And then another, another guy comes and says, no, 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 no. He says, it's nothing like that at all. He said, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a tree because he's feeling the leg. It's, it's, it's wide and fat. And another guy says, no, 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 no. It's nothing like that at all. It's, it's, it's flat and wide, man. It's really large um, as he pats the side of the elephant and so on. And so each blind man can only feel part because none of them can imagine the whole thing. And so the argument goes, so it is with religion. You've only got part of it. No one can see the whole thing. Okay? You can only grasp part of spirituality because no one can see the whole elephant. And no one can claim to have a comprehensive vision of the truth. So it sounds really logical, but it isn't. Why is it not logical? Because... The argument backfires completely when you realize that the story is told from the point of view of someone who can see the whole elephant. Okay? It only makes sense if somebody knows there's a whole elephant. Okay? You wouldn't say to that photographer, you're very arrogant because you can see the whole elephant. You've taken a picture of it. You've taken a real picture of the truth. That is what it is. And, and you can help these people, but it's... It's only because what that, what that illustration says is somebody can see the whole truth. Somebody can see the whole elephant. Um, because otherwise, it doesn't make sense at all. 
So when you say, you know, how could you possibly know that religion can see the whole truth? You have to be saying yourself that I've got superior knowledge to you. I've got comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you've just claimed that nobody else has. So it's the same argument for yourself saying what you can't know the truth. So to say that it's arrogant is to insist that something is, you know, your, your religion or your philosophy um, isn't right. And you cannot do that. Okay? But skeptics will say that any exclusive claim that you have okay, cannot be true. You know, how can one religion be right and how can uh, any one worldview world be right? How can one person be right on that? But as soon as you say that, as soon as you claim that nobody can know everything, you are effectively claiming to know something more than everyone else. So the whole thing just falls on its face when you actually unpick it. It's an unprovable faith assumption. Um, and so if, if it's narrow-minded, if it's not narrow-minded to say you can't say that, then it's not narrow-minded to say you can. I'm getting confusing myself here. But you get the thing. The photographer is not arrogant. He's just taking a picture of the truth. That's kind of the main bit to remember there. But the heart of the uniqueness of Jesus and hence of Christianity is that this is not Christianity saying it is a better set of rules than someone else. This is a better way of living than someone else. It is saying that it's the only thing that is dealt with the real problem. And as somebody once said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Okay? It's only through that sin in our lives. It's only because somebody has done something with sin that there is an, a, a way forward. And Jesus is the only one who lived a sinless life, claims to be God, and gives his life as a sacrifice for each one of us. And real forgiveness is always costly. If you've ever had to forgive someone, you know there's a cost. If you break something, you break a window, somebody has to pay. If you, there's a car collision, someone has to pay. There's always a cost. Okay? In relationship breakdown, it is a costly, costly thing to forgive. Okay? There is always a cost in forgiveness. And secondly, in real love, there's also a personal exchange. That you have to... You have to um, I think this is most obvious in parenting. Okay? If you want to bring up a child to be self-sufficient and independent, what's it going to cost you? It's going to cost you your independence and your freedom. Okay? You have to give up in order to raise this child so that they get their freedom. There's always a personal exchange. If you want to reach out into someone who is particularly needy, it will cost you. Okay? As you give out okay, so that you can build them up, there's a drain upon yourself. There's a, there's a cost in life. And... Um, there is anything, as someone has said, is anything that is a life-changing love towards someone else will require a substitutional sacrifice. And that is what Jesus has done. You know, my way is to, to live with me as in the crown, where I make my decisions. But what Jesus has done is he's come, God has come in Jesus to die on a cross, to pay for my sin as my, in my place so I can be forgiven and so that I can be replaced with Jesus, if you like, as God in the middle of that crown. And that is God's new way. So I'm forgiven, but I also now led um, by Jesus as well. So he's utterly unique. And uh, that is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is putting God 
putting myself where God should be and the essence of salvation is God coming and putting himself where I should be um, and taking that pain and taking that death so that I can be forgiven and live life. Let's pray together um, as we come to a close. Father, we pray for, for every one of us, Lord, that we would just respond afresh to um, all that you've done. Father, we, we come before you, not with arrogance, Lord, to a world, but with humility before the claims that you make. And the humility is that, that your way is right, not our way. Our way is, is not right. Our way is so wrong. And yet we bring our lives before you um, in humility and ask you, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would lead our lives. Lord, we thank you that you don't push it on anyone, but that you long to uh, draw us into a, a real relationship with you. Amen.